Welcome to our interview series on Brave Feminine Leadership, where we get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders. And I get to ask about women in leadership and I get to hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. And I literally could not be more thrilled today to be uh, welcoming Jack Stack to our conversation. Jack, it is so good to have you here. Great to see you. So I am going to touch on your bio, and as I promised you earlier, I'm going to I'm going to add some stuff on to the end of that bio because I want people to know how we met, um, and I think the impact that you have had on me and my ability to lead um, over the years as well. So, look, let me jump into this. So Jack Stack is president and CEO of SRC Holdings Corporation. And Stack came to SRC in 1979 as the plant manager of the International Harvester. And in 1983, Stack and SRC employees bought the company from, from Harvester and have turned it into what Inc. magazine has proclaimed one of America's most competitive small companies. Today, SRC have sales of over 600 million and over 1,800 employee owners. Jack's the author of the books, The Great Game of Business, A Stake in the Outcome, and his latest, Change the Game, Saving the American Dream by Closing the Gap Between the Haves and the Have-Nots. Jack has been married to his wife, Betsy, for 50 years and is the father of five children and grandfather of 12. Jack, before I hand over to you, um, I just want to say that um, I came across Jack because in my sort of well, relatively early-ish days as a senior leader, I was part of an organisation that adopted the um, the culture that you implemented into SRC and we kind of, we followed that. We followed open book management and we followed the great game of business. And I often tell people that that transparent model of leadership, which I'm going to dig into and ask you about, but that transparent model of leadership um, honestly allowed me to be the sort of leader that I think, um, you know, allowed me to kind of literally unlock my highest potential as a leader. So I wanted to thank you for that. And we'll get into a bit more about it. Um, but it's thrilling to have you here with me, Jack. So for anyone who hasn't met you before, let's give you a chance to talk. Anyone in the audience who hasn't met you, who are you, Jack? Who are you as a human being? Tell me, tell me all. Well, let me get over the tearing up from the compliment about uh, this having an impact on you because, you know, I think and that was what the purpose of the whole program was all about. And it, it really started a long time ago and it's all been put together by bits and pieces and, you know, um, not only help from everybody, but the experiences that we all went through in life. And we went through some very interesting experiences in the 60s and some experiences in the 70s. And they weren't really pretty. Okay, they were part of that industrial society. They were, they were part of a command and control mentality. Uh, you question. Um, I, I started in the hourly ranks. I got to work with the hourly. I got the perception of what hourly people had of leaders. Yeah. And one day, woke up and became a leader, and I lost all my friends. And I mean, I purposely, you know, um, strove to figure out. You know, what are the best practices? Okay, what can't we just come to terms? Can't we come to agreement? Is there just something that we could all combine our, our efforts and do, can we get rid of the nitty gritty stuff and then just get to what's really important? And uh, 
I was able to have a lot of jobs. And each one of those jobs, I learned a little bit more. And then one day, um, the rug got pulled out from under us and they were going to close our factory. And here I was the plant manager and I was, a, you know, I, I had gone beyond command and control. Okay. Because it didn't work. It was ridiculous. I, it may have worked in a big city like Chicago, but when I went to a small city like Springfield, Missouri, these guys were agricultural people. Okay. These guys were entrepreneurs. And the idea was get, give them the tools to do the job and get the heck out of the way. It was like the most cleanest form of leadership. But at the same time, it needed some rules and it needed some, you know, scorekeeping and it needed to be put on some kind of a track. Okay. Uh, because as much as you want to give everybody as much authority, you got to figure out how that authority can come together for the betterment of the whole. All right. This whole concept of never leaving anybody behind. And uh, all of a sudden, um, we were faced with uh, A, laying people off or having this company sold out from under us and going to somebody else. And, and in the 1980s, you didn't buy anything because capital was uh, 18% interest rates here in the United States with a 12% unemployment. They didn't want you to have capital. And it was a very, very rough period of time. So it wasn't a matter of um, just knowing and putting our, our future in somebody else's hands. So we let an employee buy out. And we knew nothing about companies. Okay, We could build engines. Now we could build trucks and tractors, but they never taught us anything about building a business. And although we had been through some of the brightest programs, uh, we went through Deming, all right, who had a big influence in our life. And uh, we went through all kinds of quality programs. And, you know, I mean, any management fair that came along every six months, we would go out to our people and say, if you do this, it'll change your life forever. And their lives never changed, okay, which is just maddening, okay. So here I go out to borrow capital to be able to save the jobs of the people that are working for us. And they're talking about a whole different set of metrics, okay? I mean, I, I knew the specification, the blueprints of how to make a product, but I had no idea what the specifications of a business really were, okay? I had been taught by the best in terms of making a product and a service, but I knew nothing about creating an outstanding, enduring company. And so when I go out there with a blueprint of an engine, as part of my business plan to raise capital, all right? They asked me questions that I had no idea what they meant, okay? I didn't know what debt to equity was. I didn't know what receivable turnovers were. I didn't know what payable terms were. But I walked away from that first rejection with this idea saying, oh my God, there's two sets of metrics in business, all right? There's these metrics that you want someone to produce something or have some kind of a service. And then there's these metrics about a company. And it seemed the people with the capital really understood the specifications of a company while I'm sitting down in the company trying to figure out how to create the best engine. And then I came to the conclusion that why didn't the company I work for ask me to create a gate company? Why do we have two systems? Why do we have the elite that would have all this book knowledge and have this financial knowledge? Then they would design a new system for us to get what they wanted financially, but they wouldn't tell us what it was. And they would write all these job descriptions and they would write all these performance standards and they would write these 360-degree reviews, okay, which ended up to be kind of meaningless because we weren't hitting the targets that the company really needed to hit in order for it to succeed. And that's why it was failing, okay? It was obvious. They never told me inventory was money, never, all right? I mean, they figured out all these different ways of figuring out something other than telling me what the truth was. So when I began to... I, I kept pursuing the the, ability, the the loan, all right, because my God, I, 
We had 250 people at the time. We didn't want to lay them off. And so in the pursuit of the loan, and it was only after about writing my 10th business plan that I began to realize is that this doesn't change. You know, that this record, this specification, these blueprints were invented in the 1400s. You fill them out the same way every 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 quarter or, or every month if you so desire. And it always starts out with sales up here, profits down here, you got cash on the balance sheet, you got equity on the on the bottom. But what happened was is that you had all these phenomenal stories that occur within these financial statements, right? And most of the stories are created by the people that are down on the shop floor, you know, working the command and control, but not told entirely what it was that they were trying to get. So we spent maybe 14, 15 years in the desert wandering around saying, what's this for? They're not telling you something. Something has to connect and boom, all of a sudden it connects. And so we made a promise. We made a promise to God that if ever we got the facility, that we'd spend the rest of our lives trying to teach people that you can understand this stuff. This is the stuff that really makes the difference. If you understand capital, you understand budgeting, you understand debt, it can change your life forever. It can make a significant difference. Okay, that there is this, this higher calling times of business. And it was to try to figure out how to be able to not only create you know, wealth, but distribute it as fairly as you possibly could. And after about 50 attempts to borrow money, we were we ran into a bank that was in serious trouble. And it was divine intervention that we got the loan. We never should have gotten the loan, okay? Because it was, when you work for big companies all your life, you didn't have a lot of money, right? So we, the deal was $9 million for the facility. And uh, we came up with $100,000 worth of equity. We were one of the worst debt to equity buyouts in the history of, the, of, of business. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting it at an 18% interest rates. But we had our jobs. We had an opportunity. And we felt that the most, the quickest way to be able to not only survive, pay down the debt and create job security was to tell everybody how to make a difference in terms of a company and where they fit in, okay? And what roles they play. And we began to, with a simple huddle staff meeting where we basically were honest and said, guys, we're, our debt to equity is 89 to one. Okay, that is the ninth cycle of Dante's Inferno. Okay, there is no turning back right now. So everything we do has to be for each other. Everything we say, every metric that we put in, every every number that we put together is for the benefit of everybody inside the organization. Mm-hmm. And I'll show you the whole thing that we learned in the process is that this income statement can be used to bring everybody together. You know, you want to make a difference. I can show you where you can make a difference in cost, or I can show you make a difference in supply, or I can make a difference in selling and margins and there's wonderful things to be taught okay and if you understand the principles in terms of being able to do what is necessary in order to be win the benefits are absolutely extraordinary so in 1983 we worked upon this program that pundits writers came in later on and said oh that's open book management i mean we didn't invent the word open book management it was like when somebody comes in and looks at you and go oh this is what it is right well what we want do, hey, we wanted to come up with a real simple system, okay? That 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 was as fair as fair could possibly be. We felt very strongly that people really didn't want to be led, and they didn't want to be managed, okay? But if in, but we also needed system to by which we could perform and we could have order, and so we came up with this crazy philosophy called the Great Game of Business, and we wanted to teach people that they could understand financials. 
that it wasn't that hard. And we spent too long a period of time telling you you were stu- stupid to be able to understand them. Or it was too confidential for you to well, know. It was a power deal, you know, by the elites of the past. And as we opened up our books, people began to get it. They began to like it. They began to, you know, all of a sudden they began to see what they did, whatever they pushed, moved to something else. And that moved to connect with somebody else. And what was really cool about it is that we began to work for a system. Mm. You know, it's like like what Edward Deming did done to Japan. I mean, he said, look, I mean, you know, 95% of it is all process. You spend 5% in terms of the people. And, you know, when you, if you spend 95% to be the right process, okay, everybody will benefit from it. So we began to develop an accelerated learning process to get people to understand business. We've been in business for 40 years. Our records on earnings are 39 and 1. Okay. And it's no surprise because it's it's a joint effort by everybody inside the organization. So, Jack, you know, just we talked about command and control earlier. I mean, this culture, if no one's come across this style of leadership before, it sounds like a lot of hard work for leaders. Isn't it easier to just tell people what to do? Like, why build this transparent culture? I don't know, because eventually you find out you're a phony under command. <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me more. Oh, come on. You run out of tricks, okay? You run out of, of ways of motivating. You run out of ways of engaging. You know, one of the most incredible things that I've seen since the pandemic is we really now are really, really kind of focused in terms of what people really want, is that people get more get bored more frequently than you could ever believe, okay? And what I... What I know is that when we are always dealing with a higher level of thinking than most people in most organizations, we are not only getting what they're doing on a, on a, on a manual basis, we're getting what they got in a mental basis, all right? We got them thinking about the, the, the company as a product, okay? I mean, with the, and they aspire to be able to produce the service or the, or the or manufacture of the engine, okay? It's for the purpose of creating an outrageously successful company of which they can be a part of, all right? And it's so hard for me to believe that there's this thing called the power of the multiplier, okay? That if, in fact, you do like $1 worth of earnings, the valuation of your company could be 10, 11, and sometimes 200 times that $1. It's almost like, okay, this sounds too good to be true, therefore it's not true. And so we're not going to tell a lot of people that this is really what it's all about. So we began to teach them how capital people raise more capital and then we figured out a system in order to make certain that we gave them everything they wanted okay i mean there's only seven spots cash goes all right so the idea was to be able to put a little bit in every pot you know in order to be able to create the 100 year old company or the 40 year old company or at least create you know something that we thought that people basically wanted security comfort fun you know excitement celebration okay have a good time life is short you know, let's not establish the standards of male versus female. Okay, let's build a system here that's that's not biased to anybody. Okay, then if everybody can gain, everybody can grow and everybody can grab the brass ring. And so <laughs> for 40 years, we've been working on it and improving upon it, learning upon it. We've been through four recessions and one pandemic. And every year after every single maybe... Uh, catastrophic event we've doubled the value of the business right because we just understand how to do that 
and I ask you the command and control question um, as a joke, and, and you and I both know that, but, you know, I say the, the reason that I found that environment so freeing was exactly what you said. As a leader, um, you know, when you can't share all that information and you haven't engaged your team in the problem with you, the pressure is on you to find all the answers, whereas... Yeah. This is different. You know, you're you're sharing the problem. You've got people engaged in the business who are thinking and helping you. So I actually found it easier from a leadership point of view. God bless you. Bless you. I can't tell you how freeing it is. All right. And that's what I try to tell most of the leaders, okay, that are just curious about it. I got you don't hide. You don't have to have your tie on straight when you come out of your office. Okay. You don't have to have you know, this is the most freeing way of leading I've ever seen in my entire arts. All of you are wanting the same thing, okay? I mean, command and control had more emphasis in terms of dissimilarities than we had similarities in each other, okay? Yeah. The idea is to be able to promote the similarities. What do we want? We want a good job. We want a good pay. We want good benefits. We want to feel like we're making a difference. We want to feel important. We want to be engaged. We want to be happy, okay? Why can't we do that? Our, that's our priority, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, the reason called it a game for the simplicity was that it was very difficult for them to believe that they could learn it. You know, our education system has failed miserably, okay, when it teaches, when people come out of here, and you know, we see new people every single day with mountains of debt, okay? I mean, just don't understand things like budgets, okay? We have worked so hard with our people to be able to make certain that they're financially as safe as they are physically and mentally safe in terms of having a good life. Jack, where does that, um, where's that attitude of yours come from? Because it is, it is different um, than a lot of attitudes in business. And, you know, just one thing that I loved, I asked some questions around, you know, your number one routine to show up consistently as a leader. And your answer, I think, spoke volumes about you. And it was to look everyone in the eyes. Like, tell, tell me about that. It was all part of my growing up. It was amazing that when I was an hourly person, how many leaders would walk by you and not even look at you? Okay. I mean, that's probably the most uh, insulting, you know, thing that you could possibly do. And and I, to this day, wherever I go, whenever factory, whether it's a restaurant or whether it's, it's, it's looking people in the eye and saying hello, you know, to be able to make the contact to, Tell them that you're interested in a relationship, okay? I mean, there is no hierarchy of, of people or responsibilities, okay? Everybody gets up the same way. Everybody puts their clothes on the same way. Everybody comes to work at the same time, okay? It's, there isn't this differentiation, okay? And what it is is that in the hopes of creating a level playing field that they can have the can-do attitude, okay? All we're trying to do is, you know, be able to convince people that they can do it, you know, and... Too often, you know, I think what happens is that they don't, they surrender too easily, okay? And and if you don't have anything for somebody to fight for, to compete for, to work for, okay, the surrender, the surrendering is just, you know, just too easy. It just, and you just, you don't feel like you're making an impact. You sit back, okay? You, you become part of the living dead. That's what I used to call, you know, when you walk into health, you can tell a healthy company when you walk into it, can't you? Yes, you can. I mean, and it's not quite it's not a quantitative, calculated, statistical measurement. It is the feel of the show, right? And so yeah. we wanted everybody to be able to be proud of what they were doing and 
you know, when I was working for the big companies, we could put someone on sodium pentothal and they wouldn't say something nice about our company. In fact, we didn't even allow people to tour our facilities because we were afraid of what our people were going to say to our customers. Mm-hmm. Now, our, our people sell our customers, okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Our, we have our customers coming in now knowing that, wow, these guys are motivated. They, they really know what they're talking about. Then, you know, they, when they say customer service, they really mean customer service. It's just not a, a speak. It's not an, it, this is a true action. Okay. So we want this whole idea of participation. I mean, we want to go home at night, throwing our fists up in the air, picking up our significant others. And, you know, I mean, it's hard enough to get through life without having to go to work and having it to be a strain or having it to be a pain or having it to be a problem. And, you know, why can't we create the kind of environment that uh, if you can hear this whole thing about command and control, let me just go back one second. Um, what I began to realize is that in manufacturing, you learn about productivity. And the idea of manufacturing is that you take constraints out of the process and every constraint you can take out of the process, you move faster in terms of productivity. When I saw that there was this financial metrics out there, and then there was these other command and control metrics out there, why did I have to have two systems? All right. I mean, why do you have to go out there and say, okay, I'm going to, this is my financial plan, but I can't tell you really what it's all about. So now I'm going to design a new way to try to get you to get at that, but I can't tell you what it is. Okay. Yes. It's, it's freaking crazy, right? Yeah. So I thought, Jesus, I'm going to let him write that. I mean, let him, what would happen if you just said, you know, this is what we need to do in a company. And oh, by the way, let me give you some comparisons some, of some other companies that are doing it because publicly held companies send you their financial statements. So I could get away from this time study engineering mentality, okay, that we always knew what it was uh, to do the job and we told you to do the job. And then you looked at us and said, well, if you think you can do it under that time study, why don't you do it? Okay, that was like the, 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 a tremendous metaphor of command and control, okay? I want people to do it for the sake of doing it better. So I um, I want to ask you a couple of questions. So the first one I ask you is you're up at 5 o'clock every morning learning, absorbing new information. Tell me, tell me what drives that. Oh, okay. So I've been a CEO now for 40 years, right? And the reason there's an evolution that occurs that if you can get your organization into into a state where they really don't need you as a CEO, okay, and you're really kind of working on a system, uh, your role with the CEO moves to more of the strategic and the directive level than the operational level, okay? Because once they once they begin to understand what it takes to win, get out of their way, okay? But someone's got to be trying to figure out the future. Someone's got to be figuring out. What are you doing wrong? Okay, where's the shoe going to fall? Okay, I mean, maybe I got too much of a paranoia inside of me, okay, that says, but I've been protective of people from day one, okay? Yes. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out the five-year, the 10-year. I spent a lot of time in the future. I think if I can keep drawing people into the future, it gets them through the presence without any difficulty, okay? It moves managers and leaders even to a higher scope. I move them from operational to directional to strategic, all right, to where all of a sudden they're beginning to maybe see a recession in 2025 and not be afraid of, be able to get prepared for it, okay? 
and to be able to capitalize on it, all right, while everybody's running and everybody's afraid, you can teach people how to be strong. I, I watch and study business so I can see a bullet coming, all right? I mean, I definitely want to, I, I just don't want it to come out of, out of surprises and it's all about trying to, and playing the what ifs, okay? And so, yes, I, I, I look at global data. I look at Australia, okay? I love Australia and I love the complexities and, and the opportunities that everybody has and trying to just make absolutely certain that I've got a trap door, that I've built a contingency in terms of the plans of the people that have submitted the plans to me, okay? I mean, we've spun out maybe 60 companies since 1983 under this concept, right? And so consequently, it's kind of hard to be able to run so many companies at a specific time. But if you have the kind of systems that we're able to have, the consolidation works so good for you because you're building strength with each other's. You're figuring out where the trap doors are. You're creating a company that will do good and bad times and you've got companies that do good in good times. So I spent a lot of time in the fifth and the and the tenth year. You know, I, I I have high involvement planning as part of the process. I want people to have the tools to make the decisions. And I got to stay out in front from a strategic level. So I'm I'm always listening, I'm always learning and I'm always trying to figure out, you know, can I find something here to make absolutely certain that our growth will continue, you know, that the business will be strong. And we won't become surplus or obsolete, you know. So it's it's getting an edge is really what the idea is. So um, I, like, I like business, okay? I just like business. business. Yeah. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. So, Jack, um, your three secrets of leadership. Yep. You want my three secrets of leadership? I want your three secrets of leadership. I do think one of them is that it is amazing what you can get away with a sense with a sense of humor. Okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm, you can you can take the most difficult problem, or the most difficult confront, confrontation, the you know the the to make certain that you got the right thing at the right time in the most difficult situation. I think one of the skills that I really look for in terms of leadership is is, is that sense of humor. Okay, uh-huh. yeah, I mean the. Thing in the world is to, is to have to be able to confront a situation and leave somebody feeling much better than it was when you first started out. You know, I mean, I guess I've got a reputation around here that maybe sometimes people walk away and say things like, you know, what did he mean by that? Okay, so there's something about, you know, getting the people to be able to think, you know, on their own in terms of what point you're trying to drive in a friendly, friendly type environment. So I, I think that it's probably you know, a secret that I would basically share with, and you get in a way of murder with a sense of humor. I mean, it's just, it's a bad thing to say, but it's, you know, I, I personally think it's true. Second thing is, is, man, don't take yourself seriously, okay? I don't, I don't take myself seriously at all, you know? Um, I love the, the ability to be able to have the performance there, okay? 
But I also know that it's a it's a collective group of results. It's not any one individual, okay, that can go in and spike the ball at the end of the end zone. You know, it takes an entire team and don't get ahead of the don't get ahead of the team and try to figure out how you can continually be the participant. Um, even if you're working with an organization that's got a pretty good feel in terms of what's going on, you know, how can you be an additive, not be a commander in chief or not be the chief executive officer? Okay, you know, guys, I want to play with you. You know, I want to, <laughs> I want to celebrate you. I mean, sometimes I get really, it's sad if they don't invite me out. You know, I mean, you know, and we realize that uh, it's not the office. It's not a. It's not the material things that, that make a difference. You know, it's the, it's the impact that you have on people and the engagement that you have to, you want to have. And the last one is that I, I want, always want to be approachable. You know, I, I think approachable, you know, I mean, it's amazing because you have this title with somebody has this other perception of who you are. So you have to work twice as hard Absolutely. to be able to, to get rid of that, that perception, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, I just want to be friends with everybody. That's my biggest secret. Um, and that goes right back to what you said earlier when you first moved into a leadership role and you lost all your friends. So I can see the connections coming through very strongly there, Jack. I had I, no idea what that what that was. You know, I mean, it was a, it, within a day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a massive impact. Um, you know, yeah. for someone, um, no wonder you thought very deeply about where you went from there. I asked you when you and I caught up recently, I asked you about a time in your career where you'd felt vulnerable. And you and I had a bit of a laugh about that. And I thought, well, I'll just, I'll change the language on that to language that resonates more strongly with you. So, Jack, when have you felt scared shitless and how did you get through it? <laughs> okay. I in, in true confession is I was ever, I was scared every day up to to forty years old, and what I was afraid of is that I was going to get caught, you know. And I don't know if people can really understand what that really means, but I mean, I, I all these things were happening to me, and I and I thought, oh my god, what if someone really really finds out, you know? And so eventually, I turned forty, and I I, I remember. Reading at that particular time, the life expectancy of a, of a person was like 73 years old. I go, oh, my God, I'm 40. <laughs> and I said, if I keep being afraid for the rest of my life, this is going to be crazy. So I finally decided not to be afraid. And that was a really aha moment. I began to understand that life was short. You know, and regardless of whether you are a phony or not a phony, you might as well just enjoy it. And, you know, maybe maybe you do have something, okay? I mean, there was a pivotal point where... I would talk to my wife a lot saying, is this right? Am I doing right? Is this, you know, you'd be second, you're guessing yourself up to a point, right? And then I got to that age saying, oh my God, there's only that many years to live, you know? So am I going to live in this fear? And I think that had a really big impact on my life because I quit. I just did things from that point on. It's like I learned the hard way up to 40. And then I began to accept what it was that I learned. And then I wanted to share it even more. So mm -hmm. that was the shit moment. I did it was a 40-year shitless moment. Okay. Being scared shitless. Lucky you've yeah. had some things from that point onwards, Jack. Um, can I ask yeah. as well? Um, and I think this is something both you and I are pretty passionate about. 
I I believe there is a bit of a feedback crisis where um, across our corporations, people are not getting direct feedback that is easy to understand and, you know, to help people grow and improve. Um, and I look at, you know, I look at athletes as an example, which is where I first kind of really paid attention to this. They know that they need to get feedback to improve. And so even if it's hard to hear, sometimes they welcome it. And coaches are good at giving feedback. When I throw that out there, how do you respond to to that sort of thinking? I keep telling you that the uh, the great game, the system, the process that we have here is continually being refined. You know, like there was an old phrase that said, um, you got to get close to your customer, right? And I was going through a period of time and said, my customers were really hard. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, does anybody really like to get that close to their customers? And then I began to realize, so maybe what I need to get is close to the marketplace. Okay. And so we developed the process by bringing the marketplace to the people. Okay. And to let the people know that, you know, it isn't the leadership that establishing the standards, the standards are being set for the marketplace. So if we got everybody to understand that we're not asking you to do anything that nobody else is doing, but if we did it better than somebody else did, it could be a relative competitive advantage. Okay. So we began this tremendous engagement program where twice a year now in the high balance planning approach, we bring the marketplace to every salaried, every hourly, every manager, everybody in the organization. We bring all the facts that our sales and marketing people have to tell them how to win, how to survive, all right? We break it down financially. We teach them ratios, all right? We try to pick the ratio that that is the one that we were scared the most of, okay? So we can then concentrate on that because we don't concentrate on it now. It's going to affect us over the long term, and we've got to fix it. we got to have the courage to be able to fix it. We had a pretty sophisticated process until one person finally in the audience said, how come you're only giving us 24 hours to buy this plant? Because we would ask them to vote on the plant, you know, because uh-huh. we, we wanted this participation. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what courage that person had to be able to stand up at that particular point of time. And what a difference it made. OK, I mean, if we don't have if we don't have an environment where people are standing up and we're going to be going down the wrong, we're going to be wasting our time. We're going to be you know, doing things that aren't going to be improving and making things better. We got to get to the heads of everybody in our organizations. And you know what? That's what's happening now more than ever before. I think the pandemic, I mean, is now making us more empathetic, okay? More really understanding the difficulties of family life, the difficulties of living, you know, the difficulties of kids, you know, the problems that we have. It's interesting to think that, you know, especially with the shortage of, of, of labor in today's marketplace, you know, is that the, the, you've got to be personal. I mean, you really, really got to know the people that you're working with. And I love what's happening. I, I mean, I, 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 I serve on a lot of boards. I know we're doing it here. And I know frontline supervisor training is really getting much more intense and better and, you know, broadening out, you know, feelings and, you know, understanding work rules are changing, work hours are changing, okay, you know, family care is becoming even more relevant, more important, you know, paid time off is something that's changing, and I love it, I, and I, I think that if you, you're too set in your ways, you're never going to be able to enjoy the things that I think change brings about by 
people engaging, by people contributing. I want, I think that, you know, I'm I'm a big proponent of the wisdom of the crowd, all right? That I really think that it really takes high IQ people and it takes people that are just street smart. And you put them all in the same room, okay? You're going to get to the conclusion a lot faster and you're either going to take one side or the other side. It's the idea of coming up with the best solution on everybody. And it has to be in a non-threatening environment where people can really make a difference, right? That's the whole idea of the transparency of the system, okay? When they're so transparent, I mean, there's no place to hide, okay? We see the variances, we see the deviations, but to their, to, it's to their own standards, right? When, when we put a plan together, we go down to the people saying, here's the marketing data, okay? Here's what you gotta do to compete. What is your what is your standards? Okay, what are your goals? What are your differences? Then they're measured on how they contribute to everybody else inside the organization. I mean, the, to me, the, the financial statements was the one that I could really show where everybody made a difference, right? Because when we first started out, we gave everybody a line on the income statement. And when we found out that when we gave them a line, it was much better than a 360-degree review, okay? I mean, if you were in sales, in the old days, you'd say, you got to make 11 calls a day, seven of those new, four of them, but that'll be old. You got to run the DVD. You got to do a plant tour, okay? And never in anybody's accountability was that they were supposed to sell a million and a half a month, right? So why do I need all these five things? I don't let the person figure out how to sell the 1.5, okay? They can only do that if they have no fear, okay, that anyone is going to, you know, question their abilities or and and what we do is just try to enhance everybody's ability i mean i love a great debate i'd love a great fight you know so you've effectively that culture has set up an opportunity for people to understand exactly the role they play they play in delivering outcomes for the company so therefore feedback becomes a lot more straightforward because people have been involved in coming up with what they need to do in the first place right yeah I know this is crazy, but once you get this kind of mindset, you know, understanding how the game is played, you can work and write in your workstation, okay? You can do it with just the job that you have. I mean, you can see the contribution that you make. I mean, it could be in time. It could be in absorption. It could be in in uh, creativity relative to marketing. It could be in new systems, programs, I mean, innovation. That's what you're after, okay? And then if you can get your entire organization to be able to think innovatively, I mean, that's what, that's, I mean, we are running on cylinders now. I've never, never seen before. Okay. We're having the best decade we ever had coming out of one of the worst crises because it, it was one of safety and it was one of health and it was one of humanity. Recessions we can handle pretty well. Okay. Because we plan for them. But when you get something like this, you know, I mean, it's a lot more difficult, but we are now stronger than we have been ever before because we all took care of each other. And are you having fun? Uh, yeah, I, I, if I, I, I feel guilty about anything. It's, it's knowing we're in a good spot, you know. Yeah, we're we're in a real good spot. People, morale is really, really good. You know, and we've always been celebrators. You know, we've always been partiers, and you know, we always, we always enjoy the kinds of a game because it puts everybody in the position to be able to win. So, Jack, I want to ask you. Um, you know, I'm really interested in there being more female CEOs. Um, yes. 
Why, why do you think there might not be, why do you think progress is slow in that regard? Do you have a perspective on that? You know, that was a tremendous question. And, and the only thing that I can say is, okay, I've got five kids, three daughters. And I, I keep, when you asked me that question, I thought, well, maybe I ought to think of my kids, okay? Because my kids, two of my girls run their own business, all right? And our CEOs. All right. And I have one who went into the theater and the arts, okay, and provided a whole new education for me in terms of a, a world I didn't know anything about. Okay. But she had the courage and she had a, the ability to get up there on stage and do things that I used to compliment my boys in baseball. You know, I mean, I'd sit there and be participative. And then when you have your daughter go out there and sing the first note of Andy, you know, you you don't know what pressure is. Mm -hmm. So I think I think in a lot of places they weren't ladies were not told that they could do anything they wanted to do for a long, long period of time. Because mm -hmm. there was all this perception of okay, stay home, work, raise kids. Uh and I and I just don't think a lot of them just had the encouragement. You know, I don't think they had the mentors to be able to sit there and I never differentiated my girls from my boys. Okay. I mean, to me, I always knew that they could grab the brass ring. Okay. That, that they could, but, but you have to work on it. Okay. You have to constantly run the type of environment, the type of game to get them ready to, to play when the time comes for them to play. Okay. So my, my middle child went to university of Arkansas to get a degree to be able to run a store. And it was that store that really got her through all the education process. Mm -hmm. I don't think she had that store in mind. She would have made it, okay? Because now when she had the store, she could take a class and then she compare it to what she wanted to do. And so I think sometimes experience, all right, is something that some people got and some people didn't get, okay? Look, I came out of the 60s and it was nasty, okay? It was really nasty, okay? There was an an inferior superiority complex and it was it was bad okay i mean i learned more about life at work and it wasn't really pleasant okay to really see you know things and people's behaviors and the behaviors were not good okay the behaviors were bad but the behaviors were just as bad to men as they were in some cases to women but they were you know it, it was very very apparent to me that um there was there was definitely a positioning in life in the early years. You know, if you were in the C-suite, you had your own cafeteria. You had your own, you know, it was like really a kind of an elitist type of uh, glass ceiling that you could break out of. When I did, when I did believe that the glass ceiling was broken was when I, when I coached a, my girls' soccer team because there wasn't anybody in town that knew how to coach soccer, right? And I didn't know how to coach soccer. I was the worst soccer coach you ever saw in your life. But when my daughter knocked this person out of bounds, I said, holy shit. No, it's over. You know, it's over. The, the, the glass ceiling is over, all right? And there's going to make a big, significant difference. And I do think the momentum has been there. And the momentum has been growing, all right? And I just think it's all a matter of having more mentors, and I think it's a matter of having more opportunities, but I also think it's a matter of also getting the confidence that they, in fact, can grab that brass ring and they need to be able to continue to pursue it. I mean, 
The thing I like about our system is that it's not biased, okay? It's just, you understand the system. It doesn't matter who you are. You can you can hit it. You can hit the right note. So I think a lot about it is about making certain that you can put the confidence in the right spots. And I, wanted- I don't know. I don't sit there and tell you that, it, that it, it's improving. It is improving, okay? I do think it's improving. I think that, I think especially when we're going through this tremendous empathetic period of time, the compassionate side is winning. Okay. I love it. Yes. You know, we were taught, we were taught from an old school. You know, we, you know, for me to sit there that comes out of the industrial society, go empathy, we're going to be more empathetic. You know, it's like, Oh my God. You know, I do. I, and that's what I think you guys, I, I think it's compassion. You know, I think we needed the male needed a lot more compassion a lot earlier, you know, I think you're one of those leaders that's got a very strong balance of that, though, Jack, and you always have. I just wanted to pick up on one thing that you mentioned then was around the lack of bias in in the great game system. And I think it's really interesting and important because one of the things that um, that is called out as holding women back is not understanding the financials or not having PL experience in terms of leading an organization and understanding the levers and those sorts of things. And, and in a great game company, that never happens because people are taught that from day one. That is such a critical component, I think. I think it's an equalizer, you know. I think it's a balance. I, I, think, I think that if you, could, hey, if you could make the transition on how to be able to create this outstanding entity, okay, and teach everybody that particular mindset, okay, it'll change the world forever, all right? It's so bad that the haves know how to play the game and the have-nots don't know how to play the game. If we could teach the have-nots what the haves have learned, okay, you will see a, a, a whole gap occur in terms of our world and our society. I mean, and that's what the whole idea is, is that, you know, every job that I ever took, I was amazed that people thought it was very complex. Yeah. And I had spent a long time trying to convince them that, no, it's, this is... Let me tell you about this job, okay? You know, it's not what you think it is, all right? And I think if more people can just understand that they have the capability, they have the capacity, all they have to do is have the desire and they have to learn just a couple of things in terms of how the how it's measured, all right? I mean, I mean the the plays that that you begin to understand when you're trying to create something outrageously successful like a company I mean, it not only benefits the people in the company, it benefits the community. Our people are always giving back. Okay, Our people are always feeling lucky. If you feel lucky, you want to be able to make certain that you keep that luck going. It's it's a crazy feeling. that you got to try to figure out how to get in everybody's head. Jack, get my, that feeling. my final question that I ask everybody is, from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Um, I, geez, I look around me and I got, you know, in this, in this company here, the majority of the people I work with are, are ladies. Okay. And, and I, I, I feel kind of bad saying ladies, but these guys are tough people. Okay. These guys are, these guys are really, really tough. And I just feel like there's this tremendous sense that I get from them because when they, when they come after me, they're growing okay they're growing they're not afraid they're swinging okay and they are just some of the most enjoyable people to work with i mean i i mean 
everyone can be a bit more compassionate, okay? Everybody can be a little bit more empathetic, okay? Anybody can, you know, I, I sometimes I think males just, they just carry their feelings too deep inside of them and they got this artificial crust, you know, that they think they got to hide behind or they got to be tough-minded or they got to be a bunch of that bullshit. But, uh, you know, I personally, I really, enjoy, I really enjoy working with the ladies in our company more than I do some of the guys. Well, we might tell them then. So, <laughs> Jack, um, thank you so much for joining our conversation. It's been such a thrill to have your voice added to this. And, you know, I know people will take so much out of the the sprinkling of leadership advice that has come out along the way. So I really appreciate you joining me. Well, listen, thank you because it's my thrill to be with you. You are one smart person. You know, I listen to all your podcasts. I listen to what you're you're doing for your country. You know, I know where your heart is and your success rate has been absolutely incredible. You know, so it's it's my thrill to be with you guys. Thanks, Jack. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second-guessing themselves so that they can maximise their influence influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.